Well, let's gather together and we'll get into Revelation again. The outline to the book of Revelation is Revelation one nineteen. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So the things which you have seen is chapter 1, where Jesus reveals himself to John. Part 2 is the things which are, that's the current church age. It's the seven letters to the seven churches. And part 3 is chapters 4 and on, and that's the things which will take place after this. And so chapters 4 and 5 is a rapture, and the church in heaven before the throne of God, and Jesus receiving the title deed to the earth. And then 6 to 18 is the seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 is the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus on earth, the millennial reign, and then the great white throne judgment at the end of that. And chapters 21, 22 is new heavens and new earth. So it lays it all out very nicely for us. Today, we're doing something a bit different. I'm still going to go through and review the seven churches, or the ones we've done so far. But then we're going to go into what was the Reformation about, which is represented by the Church of Sardis. So firstly, the Church of Ephesus is the loveless church, represented the majority of churches up to 100 AD. And remember the remedy for leaving our first love, the three things? Remember, repent, and do the first works. Bible, prayer, fellowship, and evangelism. And the second letter was addressed to the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. Now, the majority of churches in the world during the years 100 AD through to 312 are being persecuted. So always remember that God uses trials to grow our faith and purify us. So submit to God and allow him to cleanse you and change you into his image. Because trials purify us. The third letter was addressed to the Church of Pergamos, the compromising church. The Church of Pergamos characterized the church from about 313 AD to 600 AD. And to fit into the world, they became like the world. So don't fit into the world's mold. The fourth letter was to the Church of Thyatira, and that's the corrupt church from 601 roughly to the end of the church age, and that represents a Catholic church. And the fifth church was the Church of Sardis, and it's a dead church. And this church represents the Reformation, uh, prophetically, and they received the Word of God, especially the Gospel of Grace. But then they didn't hold on to it, and then they are brought into liberal theology. So your mainline denominations, your Methodists and your Lutherans, and generally speaking, those mainline denominations have bought into liberal theology. So we're going to look at what God is asking them to hold on to. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, this is part of the letter to the church of Sardis. It says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. God gave them the gospel. He reminded them of the gospel. He brought them back to the truth of the gospel of grace. But what's happened in the mainline denominations is that it's generally become very liberal and they've lost that fervency that love for the Word of God. It's now no longer as important as it was before, and they're resting in their tradition. So before I keep going, I'll pray, and then we'll talk about what's happening. So Father, thank you for your glorious gospel. Lord, we can't get too much of the gospel. We can't think about it too much, because it's just so glorious. And the more we understand what you've done for us, the more we are in wonder of you, the more we wonder, why would you do that for me? And we just want to praise you and sing to you and we want to serve you and want to obey you just out of a grateful heart. So that's why the gospel is so important. So help us to have a deeper understanding of the gospel, which is the good news of what you have done for us. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. So again, verse 3 in Revelation chapter 3. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. So the church of Sardis, it would have been true at the time. They received the gospel in all its glory. And prophetically, the Reformation, they received the gospel. The just shall live by faith. Now Satan tries so hard 
to pervert the gospel, to change it from what God has done for us to what we can do for ourselves and or what we can get to have a better life here and now. So that's basically the two false gospels, the prosperity gospel and the works gospel. And there's different versions of each of those you can see around the place. But this applies to us because we can forget. We are very prone to forgetting. We can start to neglect the precious truth of the gospel. And that's what I believe Jesus' charge or what he's got against this church is. Now, the challenge for us as Christians is to hold fast to what we have received and heard, to hold fast to the gospel, to never forget. So we're coming back to basics today. So I'm going to come back and look at the false teaching of the Catholic Church and see how the Reformation brought us closer to the truth, especially concerning the gospel. Now, for me personally, the gospel is the most beautiful story ever told. Sometimes when I'm feeling quite hard, and like yesterday morning, I was quite hard, and, and then I started listening to teaching on the gospel, and my heart just, ugh. It's amazing the effect that the gospel has when we start to remember what God has done for us, and it just melts us, makes us soft. So, what do we forget? Well, we forget that we can't do anything, and it's all about God, and so we start to try and do things by ourselves, for ourselves, by our own strength. And now some might say, why study what we already know? We already know the gospel, but Paul gives us a good answer in Philippians 3, 1-3. to He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. So the gospel is something we need to keep repeating and repeating because we are so prone to forget, and the more we hear it, the more we'll understand it, the deeper we go. And verse 2 continues, Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. Now this next part of verse 3 here is the essence of the gospel. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. And so we're going to do a loop and come right back to this at the very end. So, as I said, verse 3 is the heart of the gospel. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort effort. So, what is the most important thing that we need to understand when we're starting to consider the gospel? We need to understand who God is and who we are. Okay, So, if we don't understand who God is and who we are, then the gospel won't make sense. So, who is God? Well, God is holy and God is just. And man is not holy and man is not just. Man is unrighteous. Man is a sinner. So we need to compare ourselves to Jesus and his perfect righteousness and holiness. This is the reason God gave us the law. It defines who God is. God is perfect and pure. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So, we need to understand that our problem with sin goes far beyond what we do and say. It's a matter of the heart. It's who I am. It's my essence. My heart, the human heart, my sinful nature, is predisposed to love everything else but God. It loves the wrong more than the right. So I am born with a heart that is totally opposed to God. I am naturally in rebellion against God. And we all have this sinful nature until the day we die, and that's what we battle with. And Romans 8, 7, just to show you I'm not making this up, it says, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. And Psalm 51 verse 5 says, 
For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. So some people say, oh, you know, kids are so beautiful. No, kids are not beautiful. <laughs> They're sinners too. <laughs> well, they are beautiful. Because, yes, we are still created in God's image, but it's a corrupted image. And children still have a sinful nature. All right, another way of expressing this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So, to be dead here means that we are physically alive, yet spiritually separated from God, and morally unable to respond to God. This is a key point with the gospel. We are morally unable to respond to God. I mean, think about it. What can a dead man do? We're dead in sin. We're born dead in sin. A dead man cannot resuscitate himself. <laughs> think of it that way. You know, if you're dead, it doesn't matter how much CPR you know, you can't resuscitate yourself. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and ask some questions. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So, this verse tells us, in our natural state, what can we understand about God? Nothing, yeah? It says, there is none who understands. Okay. Does it tell us about what we can do? Are we able to seek after God? No, it says there is none who seeks after God. And it tells us about our moral condition, there is none righteous. No, not one. So the gospel not only addresses my behavior or actions, but addresses who I am. And it promises to change me at the core of my being. And Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This is a new identity. This is like a resurrection. A spiritual resurrection to give us a new identity. Now, why do we need this resurrection? Why not just have our sins forgiven? Well, because God's will for me is to be good, like God is good, to be perfect, to never steal, to never lie, to never lust, to never covet, to never hate, never be disobedient to parents, etc., to be like God. And you say, oh, come on, that's a bit much. Well, what does 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The will of God is your sanctification. Us to be changed into God's image. Now, this is naturally impossible for us in our sinful state, but God promises to gradually change us into his image and to complete that process of transformation or sanctification by the time we go to be with him or he comes back for us. So, one thing I like to remember is that God's commands are God's promises. So God never asks us to do anything that he won't also give us the ability or resources to do. So what this means is that God has declared that it is his responsibility, his job, to empower us, equip us, strengthen us, grow us, and change us to become more like himself. Now, I'm just going to point this out, emphasize this as we go through Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue whose work? His work. Okay. So, who began the good work? He did. Who continues the good work? He does, yeah, until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So the gospel is all about what God does in me, through me, and for me, and it's not about my effort. So why is this so important? Because if you don't understand this part of the gospel, this is all inclusive in what the gospel is. If I don't understand that my sinful nature is completely dead, that I can't do anything good in and of myself, then guess what I'll try and do? I'll be thinking, I know I'm not perfect, but you know there's some good in me, and if I just try hard enough, I'll be able to help God out. <laughs> I'll be able to do some things that will please God. No, I can't. Okay. Again, if I don't understand that I'm completely dead in sin, 
then I will start to think that there is some chance, if I try hard enough, that I can do or achieve what God clearly says only He can do or achieve, and that is to change myself. So, of course the reality is I can't change myself, so what happens? I become despondent, depressed, turn away from God, or I become really proud because I realize I can't keep the perfect standard, so I just make my own standard and I can keep that. I start to think that I'm so much better than other people. But for me personally, I was one of those people who lived a defeated, frustrated life for many years until someone finally explained what the gospel is. The truth of the gospel, how it changes me from the inside out, and it's not about what I do, it's about what God does for me. Now, the reason so many people in churches don't want to tell people that their human nature is completely sinful and depraved is because it seems offensive. And on the surface, this is quite an offensive truth. Why? Because our pride is bruised. Our ego is damaged. But what freedom comes when we realize that without Jesus we can do nothing, and then we stop trying to do things that we were never able or asked to do. So that's the key. If we don't understand that we can't do anything, then we will still try to do things on our own strength and not be resting in God's strength. So John 15.5 I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do some things. No, it's nothing, yeah? So basically, until a person comes to understand that by and of themselves they can do nothing of eternal value, that they can do nothing good, that they will be asking questions like, well, I can't do enough to please God anyway, so why trust Him? Why believe in Him? I'm still the same person. I'm still wicked and sinful. There's no change. Why? Because they're not trusting God. They're trying to do it themselves. And it leads to frustration. And again, as I said before, they'll be swinging between the two legs of legalism or the two consequences of legalism, pride and despair. Now, what does the gospel say? No, you're not good enough and you never will be, but Jesus was good for you. Jesus was good in your place. So it's not about my goodness, it's about God's goodness. And so the basic question that the gospel answers is, how can sinful man be reconciled to a just God? whose justice demands that they be punished? Well, the answer is that Jesus came and lived a perfect life that we could never live and have never lived. And then he died on the cross. We owed a debt to God because of our sin, and that debt was suffering eternal punishment. But on the cross, Jesus, God himself, took our place, bore our sin, and suffered the wrath of God that we deserved. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, then ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now the Bible teaches that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. And it says in Timothy that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So now we come to the doctrine concerning justification. This is the defining doctrine of true Christianity, and it's the main doctrinal teaching that the Reformation corrected. So I'm just going to put it up. So it's justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now what does grace mean? Grace is a free gift. It's undeserved, unmerited, unearned. And it can't be lost, and that's good, because if it could be, we probably would lose it. Faith is trusting or believing, and this is how a person receives salvation as opposed to working for it. And justification, what does the word justification mean? Well, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's it, yeah. It's the act of being declared righteous or not guilty in the sight of God. And one of the main verses that talks about this is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And I've got it in two different versions there. 
It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the New Living says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Another verse emphasizes that it's not by what we do. Is John 6, 28-29. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So, let's get into what the Catholics were teaching and what they still teach. This is the official church position. It hasn't changed. It's faith plus works equals salvation. Now, there's different variations of this out there, different denominations and that, but I'll just work, uh, follow through the Catholic teaching because that's the Church of Thyatira. So, at the Council of Trent, this is interesting, the Catholics issued an anathema. Now, anathema means to be cut off from something, to be cut off from Christ, to be eternally damned, like go to hell. And so when the Catholics issue an anathema, it means if you do that or believe that, then you will be cut off. Basically, they say, well, if you do this, then we're taking away your salvation. So what they said is pretty scary. They said that if anyone believes that a person is justified by faith alone and they don't have to do anything to earn God's grace, then let him be anathema. Let him be damned. That's how strong they are on this point. So the Catholic religion is often called the plus religion. The Catholic Church teaches that. It's five things. A person is saved by faith plus works, by grace plus merit, by Christ plus other mediators, including Mary, according to scripture plus tradition, like papal edicts and things like that, and to the glory of God and plus and Mary and other saints. So. The Catholic plan of salvation is a salvation of works and sacraments. And so, how does it work? Well, in the Catholic plan of salvation, baptism cleanses an infant from their original sin. And this is called the sacrament of regeneration or justification. But this is just a start. And it's only the original sin that's dealt with. Not all their sins, just original sins, up to that point. Okay? Now, if that person sins, then they must receive sacraments. They must confess their sins to a priest. That's the sacrament of penance. And then they must be justified by doing good works. Then the person must maintain their salvation by sacraments, like, for example, attending Mass. And in the end, if they have enough people praying for them, and if they do enough time in purgatory, they might get to heaven. So, in summary, how a Catholic gets to heaven is based on what they do, not on what Christ has done. It's based on fear and not on love. So, now we come back to what does the Bible teach? Well, one of my favorite verses, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, how is this different to the Catholic gospel? Well, the biblical gospel tells us that when a person repents of their sin and in faith believes that when Jesus died on the cross he paid the penalty for all their sins, past, present and future, the work of salvation is completely done and paid for. And so God, from that point on, will always see the saved person as righteous or justified or perfect, without sin, no matter how many or what kind of sins they commit. No matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. So as a reminder, salvation, baptism in the Catholic Church is based on the infant baptism which removes only the original sin and not future sin. So the gospel of grace, the biblical gospel, teaches that Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for all sins, all people. It just needs to be received. So what this means is that when a Christian sins, the penalty for that sin is already paid for. 
So when we sin, there is no condemnation because that sin has already been paid for. The penalty for that sin has already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. It's prepaid. So if we sin, all we need to do is repent and we're back in relationship with God. There's no having to do good works to earn God's forgiveness to maintain our relationship with God. It's all free. And I like John chapter 10, verse 28 to 30, because the biblical gospel gives us security. It helps us to be really secure. John chapter 10, verse 28 to 30 says this, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Notice it's a gift. It's a gift here. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So how often will a Christian perish? Never. Good. All right. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So no condemnation. Why? The sins are all paid for. We are safe in God's grace. We are in Christ. He, God the Father sees us as perfect now, it's because of this false teaching that the reformers came up with the five solas, and each sola is intended to represent an important distinction between the teaching or doctrine of the reformers compared to the teaching or doctrine taught by the Catholic Church, and even today. So I'll put it up for you. So the five solas of the Reformation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. That's what the five solas for the Reformation are. And the key Catholic teachings, how they're different, they're opposite. The Catholic teachings are grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators, Scripture plus tradition, and glory to God and Mary and other saints. Now, the official position of the Catholic Church is that it regards itself as Christ on earth with divine authority to forgive sins and in part sanctifying grace. So that's basically what they still believe. So is this a new issue, this whole works gospel? Is this the first time it's happened, like in the Catholic Church? No, no. This happened early on in the Church, and we're going to read about that now. It's Acts 15, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, just a few verses, about half of it. So I'm just going to read some verses from Acts chapter 15. So it says, While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, Unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is faith plus works, yeah? And it's not just the circumcision. Later on, we'll find out in verse 5, it says, the Gentiles, in this meeting they have, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. All right, so I'll keep going in uh, Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. That means very strongly. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. So the church sends these delegates to Jerusalem. And we pick it up in verse 4. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church. This is in Jerusalem, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers, notice these are believers, who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, so these are Pharisees who had been saved, they stood up and insisted that Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So some of these Pharisaic believers had gone to Antioch and started to tell people, you need to follow the law of Moses to be saved. It's faith plus works. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. They had a council. Okay, I don't know what it was called. We just call it the Acts 15 Council. At the meeting, after a long discussion, 
Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Now remember, this is the church leaders all gathered together. This is all the authority figures in the church at the time, the actual apostles. And they're working on this issue of faith or faith plus works. Peter stood and addressed them as follows, Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he cleansed their hearts through how? Through faith. Okay. Not my works, through faith. So there's no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles in how they are saved is both by faith. And then he says, and very important, so why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? What's that yoke? It's the law. Okay. In different places, in, in Galatians, it talks about the yoke and it, it means the law. In fact, this whole story is repeated by Paul in Galatians. So I'll read that again. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke, the law, that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? What does it mean by able to bear? Well, they couldn't keep it. God gave it to them and they couldn't do it. And so why are you asking the Gentile believers to try and keep the law if we can't do it? It's crazy. Verse 11. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So here is the church council with the apostles being led by the Holy Spirit. And this is the conclusion. We believe we are all saved the same way. How? By the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. It's not by works. Verse 12, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And skip to verse 13. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, verse 16, Afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, who has made these things known long ago. And what does James say in verse 19? And so my judgment, the conclusion for this counsel is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. They are not required to keep the law. And going on to verse 30, the messengers went at once to Antioch. They wrote a letter, they take the letter back to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers at Antioch and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message imagine being told that you know to be saved you need to do this and this and this and this all these different dietary laws um, festivals days of the you know worship uh, there's lots of different things lots of aspects of the law that people can think they have to keep all the ceremonial laws circumcision etc now what was their main objection to the false gospel legalism in verse 10? Just highlight this point. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? Well, again, they recognized that the Jews were never able to keep the law. So what chance did the Gentiles have? It would just drive them to pride or despair. Now, what doctrine or teaching did they refer to to support their position? Well, Acts 15.11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Again, that's Ephesians 2.8 and 9. 
just a different way of writing it. So, in other words, Jesus didn't come just to make salvation possible for those who do their part. You know, I've done that little bit and you need to finish it. No, he came to accomplish it completely and freely give it to all people, to whosoever will believe. Now we come to a different question. What about what the Bible says about faith and works? So here's something that gets people stuck sometimes. It's James chapter 2, verse 26. It says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Ah, that's kind of a contradiction, isn't it? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. We've just been talking, we don't need works to be saved. And here it says, faith without works is dead. So, if we are saved by faith, then we don't need works. Or do we? How do you reconcile this? What does it mean? And I'm just going to put Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and James 2, 26 up. Basically it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then James says, faith without works is dead. So, the question is, is James saying that we have to do works to be saved? People take it that way. But what is the biblical understanding of this? Well, a Catholic one, where any works-based church will take this to mean faith plus works equals salvation. And works is the root or the cause of salvation. We are saved through our works. The works are the cause of our salvation. But what the Bible teaches is it puts the works on the other side of the equation, if you have the bottom part there. So the Bible teaches that faith equals salvation plus works. Works is the fruit or the effect of salvation. It's not the root, it's not what causes the tree to grow. No, we're grafted into the tree and then fruit is the result of salvation. So if we just go back to that Ephesians verse, it says, you have been saved through faith, not of works. Okay? It's talking about how you were saved, not whether you should have good works. It's telling you the works are not necessary for salvation, but doesn't say you shouldn't have good works. Does that make sense? You don't need works for salvation, but salvation, James says, will produce works. And if you don't have the good works, then it's not a true faith. You're never really a Christian. Yeah. Jesus said, talking about the good fruit and the bad fruit, and the good tree and the bad tree, you will know them by their fruit. Okay? He said, good fruit cannot come from a bad tree, and bad fruit cannot come from a good tree. So basically, the works is the fruit or result or effect of our salvation. Now, I've just got a comment down the bottom there. You know a person is saved because of their fruit. But the fruit is not the reason they are saved. So, yes, we should produce good works, but the works are a result of salvation not to achieve salvation. We are saved by God, by grace, through faith in Christ. So, did you know that the true Christian is the only person who can say that they are going to heaven without being self-righteous? The true Christian is the only person who can say they're going to heaven without being self-righteous. Because what do the other religions say? You have to work hard to be good enough to get to heaven. So if you're of one of those other religions, including a Catholic, then I'm going to heaven, I'm sure of it. Oh, you reckon you're pretty good, eh? <laughs> but as Christians, we're not self-righteous. We're saying, no, it's nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with what Jesus has done. So I'm definitely going to heaven, but I'm just a rotten sinner. God has to change me. I can't change myself. God had to forgive me and pay my penalty. I couldn't even do that myself. He's doing everything for me. And so when we say we're going to heaven, we're saying, 
Thank you, God. Not, look how good I am. The word for gospel, it means good news. Now, historically, this is interesting, I think, it referred to the good news a runner or messenger would bring to the city that victory had been achieved on the battlefield and everyone would cheer. So they won this battle, right? The army for that particular country has been fighting against another army and they've had the victory. They've won. And then a runner comes in and says, good news, good news. And all the people cheer. Why? Well, they didn't fight in the war. They didn't do anything to achieve the victory, but they rejoice in the victory and they enjoy the results of the victory. Again, they didn't do any fighting. They had nothing to do with the victory. They just celebrated the victory and enjoyed the benefits of that battlefield victory. So in the same way, Jesus says, I have accomplished salvation. I have defeated sin and death. And the good news is the runner coming to us and saying, hey, you're free from the power of sin and death. It's been defeated. You are free. He doesn't say, no, uh, you know, I've done a little bit, but I need you to come and help me fight. I can't quite do it myself, you know. No, it's not like that. That sounds blasphemous to even talk like that. We don't do anything to help him in his victory. He did it all himself. Now, here's another way of explaining the gospel of grace, which is done, and the law, which is do. So the gospel of grace is what God has done for us. So the word done there is next to the gospel of grace. This is the correct understanding of the biblical gospel. And basically what we say is, what Jesus has done, now believe that. Now on the other side, it's the law equals do. And basically what they would say is, what Jesus would do, now go and do that. See the difference? One is just simple belief, and one is, well, Jesus did this, so you need to go and do this. Jesus fed the poor, you go and feed the poor. Jesus preached the gospel, you go and preach the gospel. Jesus did it, you must do it. No, Jesus has done this for you, now believe that he's done it for you. He's given you all these promises to equip you, to empower you, just believe it, and then the fruit will come after that. So it's not... What would Jesus do? Now go and do that. Rather, the gospel is, what has Jesus done? Now believe that. So this distinction between the law and the gospel is the most important thing to remember, but it's also, I believe, the most easily forgotten. And it's easy to fall into this trap, and Paul describes it really well in Galatians 2.23. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, I can't save myself, I can't die for myself. But once they're saved, they think, you know what? If I work hard enough, if I try hard enough, I can change myself. No, you can't. You cannot change yourself. You cannot, by your own efforts and striving, obey God in a way which is going to please Him. And I'm going to put this next one up. And this is another big difference. So the gospel of grace, done. It's what has Jesus done. Now believe that. And the next thing under that is relationship causes obedience. Or relationship love results in obedience. Okay? And so the, the relationship, the love, comes before obedience. We obey because we love him. Jesus says, if you love me, obey me. Now, on the do side, on the law side, the law equals do, what would Jesus do? Now go and do that. Well, they would say obedience produces relationship. If you obey God, then you'll start to love him. But the problem is we can't obey him until we love him. So relationship comes first. We do not have a relationship with God because we obey him. Rather, we obey him because we have a relationship with him. And this is from John 14 to 15. And uh, it's a list of the progression of growing in our walk with God. 
So the more you read your Bible, the more you will know God. The more you know God, the more you will love God. The more you love God, the more you obey God. The more you obey God, the more you will abide with God. The more you abide with God, the more fruit you will bear, love. And the more fruit you bear, the more glory God will get in your life, the more we will glorify God in our lives. And this is always the pattern in the Bible. God tells us what he has done for us, and then he gives us the opportunity to respond to him with a grateful heart. He always gives us a reason or motivation to obey. And go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 22 and 3. I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, what have I written next to that? Done. It's done. What did the children of Israel need to do for God to bring them out of the land of Egypt? Did they have to promise to be good? (laughs) Nothing. It was unconditional. God promised to bring them out. God gave the promise to Abraham many years before. It wasn't because of the goodness of the children of Israel. And then the next verse is verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So God does something amazing for them. He redeems them from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, from this terrible persecution and slavery and the iron furnace, as the Bible calls it. And then he gives an opportunity to respond in love. He says, if you want to respond in gratitude, then this is what I'd like you to do. Have no other gods before me. He's not forcing them. He's giving them the opportunity. I want you to understand that God didn't say to the children of Israel, if you put me first, then I will deliver you from the land of Egypt. Does that make sense? If you put me first, then I'll deliver you from the land of Egypt. I'll take you out of bondage. He didn't do that. He basically just delivered them and gave the opportunity to respond in love, to put him first, to enjoy a relationship with him. And they didn't have to put God first. They were already free. They didn't have to. God wasn't forcing them. He's giving them a choice, an opportunity again to show gratitude. And what happens when we demonstrate gratitude? Well, it leads to blessing. We enjoy a more intimate relationship with God. And think about this. They never really put God first, but he continued to keep his promises that he gave to Abraham. He fed them. He clothed them. He protected them. He led them. And he took them into the promised land. And he defeated their enemies. And all the while, what were they doing? Complaining, murmuring, bickering, all that stuff. But he still gave them opportunities to enjoy a relationship with him. And in the New Testament, what does God do? In the the letters written by Paul, Peter and John, it starts by explaining what God has done for us, reminding us of his many glorious unconditional promises, and then describes what our response should be to God's great goodness and kindness shown to us. So it doesn't say, you know, as a Christian, you need to be a good husband, do, 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 you know, do this, this, and this, this. It does say that, but before it says that, it actually says, you know, God has redeemed you. God has given you an inheritance eternally in the heavens. God has made you kings and priests. God has, you know, forgiven you of all your sins. God has empowered you. God has And you can go on, all those promises. And then he says, as a result, or in response to that, this is what I'd like you to do. This is how you can enjoy a relationship with me. This is how you should treat other people around you. This is how you treat your kids, how you treat your wife, how you treat your employer. So God saved me when I didn't deserve it. God gave his life in place of mine while I still hated him. And that should cause us to go, wow, thank you, God for all you have done. That's how can I show my gratitude? And that is the gospel of grace. So when we understand all that God has done for us, his wonderful grace, then we will want to follow him willingly and joyfully obeying him. Again, this is the gospel of grace. And coming back to the start, it's based on the assumption that our human nature is completely corrupted and is unable to seek God and is unable to understand God. 
Therefore, we need to rely on God for everything and live in total dependence on Him. Now, if we forget and we start to, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know God saved me, but I'm now walking by human effort instead of by the Spirit to change, sanctify myself, I'm trying to do it myself, then what happens is the Christian walk becomes an obligation that we begin to despise. We begin to hate this Christian life. Our relationship with God soon dries up and becomes loveless. And this is the false gospel of law and is based on the assumption that a human nature still has some good in it and if we try hard enough, we can do it ourselves okay, and earn our salvation. And as I promise, we come back to the starting verse, which is Philippians 3, verse 1 to 3, and it says, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised or keep the law to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. So, Father, I thank you for just this simple message of the gospel where we were dead in trespasses and sins, but you resurrected us. You caused us to become alive in Christ. You seated us in the heavenly places. You've given us an eternal inheritance. Lord, you have just blessed us beyond what we can ever ask or imagine. And you want to do for us beyond what we can ever ask or imagine. So Father, help to really consider all the good things you've done for us and to respond to you with a grateful heart. And it's just a logical, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, it's a logical act of worship. It's submitting to you and saying thank you for all that you've done for me. So I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.